today, Father, as we open your word again. We are at your feet. We are your children. We are your students and your disciples. And we do look, Father, to you to teach. So we ask that your word would be spoken truly and honestly and by the word, by the power of the Spirit. And that we would hear it in the same way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since today is Mother's Day, I thought I'd tell a little story to start off. A story of an Amish family. Now, you know the Amish? We don't have many of them here. They're more the northeast, right? Midwest, northeast. But, but you encounter them once in a while. They're notable for not wanting technology. Some of you might know them by their furniture. Well, in one case, a, a, an Amish father uh, had decided that for his wife on this Mother's Day, he wanted to do something a little different. After all, she already had all the furniture. And he said to his son, let's go into town. We'll visit the mall for the first time and see if there's something there that we can buy for mom. And of course, mom didn't want to be left out, so she came along, rode in the cart. And uh, as they park in the parking lot, and the father and the son go in, they leave mom behind so that they can surprise her with the gift. And as they walk into the mall, one of the first things they notice against the, uh, one wall are these shiny silver reflective doors. And every now and then, the doors would open, and then they would close. They would open, and they would close. And they were fascinated. The son turns to dad and says, Dad, what is that? And he says, I don't know, son. I've never seen that before in my life. And as they're watching, this old lady, this elderly lady with a walker and uh, you know she's bent over she's obviously very up up there in years and she's shuffles up and pushes this button that's on the wall and the button lights up and the next thing you know the doors just slide open and there's a little room behind the doors and the lady then proceeds to walk into the little room and the doors close behind her the son and the father are just staring in amazement at what's going on and as they watch the doors close they notice that above the doors there's these lights that start to move from left to right and the lights just continue to dance across the top of the doors and they don't know what to expect. Next thing they know, the lights turn around and start coming the other way. And before long, the doors slide open again, and out from the inside of that room comes this beautiful 24-year-old woman. And she just saunters out. And the father leans over to the son and says, Son, go get your mother. Now, some might consider that inappropriate for Mother's Day. I thought it was funny. Now, how, you might ask, does that have anything to do with Genesis chapter 5? And there is a tie-in, because things aren't as always as they appear in life, certainly not in that story, but also not in Scripture. Because in today's lesson, we're in chapter 5, one of the genealogy chapters of Genesis, and for many Bible students, these are the chapters you skip. Right? You're in the story. You're following along in the line of what's being taught. You get to one of these genealogy chapters. Here's one. There's another one in chapter 10 we'll come to later. And you look at it for just a half second or so, and then you say to yourself, well, clearly there's nothing here for me. And you read maybe a few names. You can't pronounce them, and so you move on to the next chapter. But in reality, these chapters have as much to teach us as any other chapter in Scripture. It just may take a little more work for us to see what God has put in His Word in these chapters. Well, I've done the work. And so my intent now is to show you what's there in chapter uh, 5. And we actually begin by just looking at the very end of chapter 4. We won't read it again. We've covered it last week. But you'll notice if you review it in your, in your Bible that we came to the end of the line of Cain in this telling of the story last week at the end of chapter 4. And at the end of that chapter, we noted when we taught last week that it resulted in this culmination of Cain's sinful family best seen in the man who was seventh in the line through Cain, 
seventh from Adam. And that way I was, was Lamech. Lamech embodied this completed, perfected sin nature in keeping with his position as seventh, the number of completion or perfection. He is the seventh in Cain's line from Adam, and his sin is the perfected or corrupted sin nature. He, he becomes a poster child in that respect. His sin was on display in, in a variety of ways. He didn't need God. He was independent of God. Lamech uh, boasted of his own ability to protect himself, of his own honor. He had absolutely no interest in the things of God. And yet all the while, Lamech and his fathers were giving lip service to God, and even in the way they named their own sons, these pious, holy-sounding names. Remember all of that? Now, in contrast to Lamech, who was seventh in the line of Cain, chapter 4 ended with a return now to Adam and a look at the other side of the family tree, specifically Seth, the one whose name means the appointed one. And he is now the one to replace Abel and restart the line of the seed. The line of the seed refers to the descendants from Adam who God has appointed to carry the promise forward, the promise that he would provide a seed, a Messiah, who one day, through the work he would do, would reverse the effects of sin and reverse the curse on the earth. And you remember we talked about this very early in chapter 4 when Eve named her first child Cain, thinking that he would be the Messiah, not realizing that this was a plan that had many, many, many generations yet to go. And as those generations will come, there's one generation, one descendant who is the one God has selected to carry his promise forward. The rest are not included in that seed line. So Seth was the appointed one, the one whom God would use to carry the promise forward. And then his son, Enosh, was likewise the seed son of Seth. And we heard last week, he is the one who begins to engage in public worship. He invented worship of God, public worship of God. Now already you see a clear distinction, don't you, between Cain's line and Seth's line? Chapter 5 continues to reveal that difference. Let's look at chapter 5. Now, because the nature of this chapter is such that it doesn't work well to break it up into a lot of smaller pieces, I'm going to read chapter 5, verses 1 all the way to 24, and then we'll talk through it and see what God has for us in this section of chapter 5. The very last part of chapter 5 we'll wait until next week to cover because it forms a kind of introduction to chapter 6. So let's look at chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan 
or 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Well, we will pause there. So here's the genealogy chapter of Genesis, one of the genealogy chapters, one of those chapters in which at this point, if we've even made it this far in our own personal study, our eyes are probably glazing over, where our minds started to wander somewhere around Mahalalel, and then by the time we're at the end of the chapter, we're like, that was nice. Now, let's get to the flood story, and we can't turn the page. Well, in chapter 6, we do begin the Toledot of Noah. Noah now becomes the focal point for the rest of the book. And chapter 5 fits between the Toledot of Adam and the Toledot of Noah. That's going to be the pattern you're going to see now in the book of Genesis going forward. I want you to understand the pattern because when you understand how the book is stitched together, a lot of these things start to make more sense inherently. We begin to see them in a different way. Moses is focused in the book of Genesis on one point, by and large, through the whole book of Genesis. His point is, who will carry forward the promise? Who will be the seed? Who is, how is God fulfilling the promise he gave in the garden? And in the way Moses chooses to tell his story, he selects one person who's in that line of the seed, and he tells that one person's story in depth for a while. But when that person's story has run it to conclusion... He now will move to the next person, hopping to another person in that line, and tell their story. But between those two people, he stitches them together with a genealogy chapter. So chapter 5 is stitching together the story he just told on Adam, which concluded now in chapter 4 with Adam giving birth to Seth and so on. And stitches that together with chapter 6, which begins this extended discussion, the extended story of Noah. So Adam and Noah become the two focal points with chapter 5 connecting them. Also, you may remember we've said Moses has this zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out pattern as he goes through the narrative. So in times he will zoom in, talking about days or weeks or months or a few years, and then he'll break and he'll zoom out, and he'll cover a long period of time very quickly until he gets to the next point where he wants to dive in. As an example, this chapter I just read, the verses I just read to you, cover 1,500 years of human history. Just like that. Done. The first two chapters of the Bible only cover seven days. We just covered 1,500 years. That's going to be the pattern we'll see happening quite frequently. Next time we get another one of these zoom out moments, it's chapter 10. So even before we study the chapter in its detail, we have to probably answer a few questions that are on our mind from what we've just read. Maybe the first one is, why do we have a genealogy in the scriptures at all? Why the stitching together? Why don't we just jump from Adam to Noah? Well, besides the reason I just gave, the idea that it connects the story together, there's at least one other major purpose, and I don't mean to suggest this is all of what we could come up with, but there's one other major reason why there's genealogies in scripture. 
God promised to bring salvation to the world through a seed, a seed he has chosen. Paul clarifies in the book of Galatians that when God referenced seed in Genesis, he wasn't talking about the plural, people. He was talking about singular, seed, as in one, one man. He was talking about Christ, in other words, Paul tells us. So there is a point in time in which the promise will be fulfilled. Some point in time in which God will bring this appointed seed that he said is the solution to the sin of the garden. And in order for us to know definitively when that one has shown up, he gives us ample clues in Scripture so that anyone who's paying attention and interested can identify who is this seed, apart from all the others who might come and claim to be the seed. And one of the key things God presents in Scripture to help us know who the true seed is are genealogies, such that we can trace somebody's lineage back to Adam and they could know definitively, is somebody's claim to be the Messiah true? Are they truly capable of being the Messiah? Do they come through the right line? Those genealogies you know eventually come to bear in Luke and in Matthew. You go look at those two Gospels, they both have genealogies in them. Matthew traces Jesus back to Abraham. Luke traces Jesus back all the way to Adam. And by virtue of those genealogies existing in Scripture, Luke and Matthew had the ability to do that. And in being able to do that, they substantiated, at least in part, they substantiated Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. No one could say to Jesus, I'm sorry, you didn't have the right family line, you're not able to be the Messiah. No, there was scripture to suggest or to support that he was. So genealogies help preserve a record that God uses to validate his son when his son showed up. So that's one big reason why they exist. Now let's look at chapter 5. Moses begins the the chapter here with a brief reminder of how Adam himself began and then how children were born. Notice that Seth was born when Adam was 130 years old. And then Moses emphasizes something very important. Look in the text. He says, this child born to Adam was born in the likeness and in the image of Adam. The words likeness and image are important here. The word for likeness in Hebrew is demuth and literally it means in the pattern of Ladies, if you've ever sewed your own dress, I don't know if we do that much anymore, but it used to be, I think, more common than it is today, you understand what a pattern does. It's not the dress itself. You would never wear the pattern. But by virtue of the pattern being a representation of the dress, it, it evokes, it, it suggests what the pattern, what the dress will look like when it's finally done. Similarly, this word demuts implies that the children of Adam are matched to him in some way. They're like stamped out of his pattern in some way. Then you have the word for image, tethlem in Hebrew, and it literally means in the appearance of. That's different than its pattern. Go back to the example I used of the dress. The dress you finally end up with doesn't look like that tan, thin, onion skin paper at all. It looks totally different. So it's made on the pattern, but it's not of the appearance. The kind of child, children Adam was having, particularly Seth in this case, Seth had Adam's pattern and Seth had Adam's appearance. That continues to today. Your children have both your pattern and your appearance. So what is the pattern here? What, is, what do we mean by pattern? What we're referring to here is the sin nature of Adam. The same sin nature Adam had is being imprinted on every one of his children. And then, of course, by appearances, he looks like his parents, which is something we would expect. But I want you to glance back to verse 1 of chapter 5. Notice how Adam himself was created. 
He was created in the likeness, or there's that word again, the pattern of God. What pattern was that? Holiness, perfection, goodness, not knowing sin. And in that respect, Adam was just like his dad in the pattern that God used to create him. He had the same nature. But now you notice, as Adam goes to procreate, he's not creating in the pattern or in the likeness of God anymore. Now he's creating in the likeness of himself. Here you see the effect of sin playing out. There is not a continuing development in which my children are made in the image or in the likeness of God. Sorry, folks, that went away when Adam ate in the garden. No one since Adam has ever been created in the likeness of God save Christ himself. We are being created in the likeness of Adam and in the image of Adam as well. And by faith, by grace through faith, God is able to take that nature, that pattern that we came with from Adam and replace it with the one that he gave Adam in the beginning, with the likeness or the pattern of God himself. That's the spirit that comes into us when we believe. So God made Adam in the likeness of God. Adam now, though, is making offspring in his own likeness. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul is simply echoing this this same fundamental truth. In our natural state as unbelievers, we have nothing in common with God. What about the long ages we see mentioned here? How in the world do people live 900 and something years? Clearly that's not literal, right? Well, some Bible students have come to assume these numbers are wrong or they're symbolic. Some have even gone so far as to think that maybe they mean months, not years, as if the writer didn't know the difference between the two words. By the way, if that were in fact what he meant, if you were to try to change all these numbers to months instead of years, it doesn't work. Some of these people are having children when they're only five years old themselves, so it can't work either way. No, these are years because they are years in the Bible. The Bible is specific. The writer is using the Hebrew word for years. There's no ambiguity here. The reason people come to this chapter, though, and they look at these ages and they say, that can't be right, is simply because... Their present day experience tells them that people cannot live hundreds of years in length. That's a classic example of interpreting scripture through a lens of our personal experience and the world we see. So I try to make sense of the text by looking through a lens of what I know today, of what I see in the world today. And so what I see in the world today is people don't live that long. So then I go to the text and it says people do live that long and I say it can't be true. Because today, people don't live that long. That's looking at Scripture through a lens of experience. What we're supposed to do is interpret our world and our experience through a lens of Scripture and make sense of what we see today in light of what we know is true as written in Scripture. Now, if I were to do that in this case, if I were to interpret my experience today, and by that I mean the fact that people don't live very long today, if I were to interpret that based on a lens of scripture that knows that in the past men did live hundreds of years old, then I'm on the right track. So how would I do that? Well, first, I would apply the golden rule of interpretation. The golden rule of interpretation is when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. And in this case, there is no indication in the text to suggest that these ages are anything other than literal. And so to seek another sense then simply the literal is reaching past the meaning of the text and trying to come up with some other meaning of my own, some preferred meaning that makes me feel better. 
But looking at the world through a lens of Scripture, I am forced to conclude that men lived very long lives in the beginning of time, and today they don't. And then I also notice later in Genesis, as I read through the rest of this book, I'm going to notice that the length of life begins to decline, particularly after the flood, precipitously after the flood. Now we'll discuss why in chapter 9 when we get there. We know God created Adam and woman in perfection in the garden before they fell. There was no sin in them, no imperfections in their body. They had a body that had no limits. Their body had the ability to carry on indefinitely. In fact, even to today we see our body showing great regeneration capabilities up to limits, up to some limit. Secondly, we know that death was not a part of God's original plan for the body. He said you must die now because you have sinned, but that was not part of the original design. So death is not a necessity. Third, we know that the process of physical death was instituted by God's decree, but the decree was this. Everything would wear out. Everything would wear down. Everything would fall apart. Everything would return to dust. He didn't design death of the body to be an instantaneous process that comes out of nowhere. Now, yes, some people die early. Some people die unexpectedly. I'm not saying that isn't possible. What I'm saying is the norm is a steady, gradual deterioration of the body. We see it in our appearance. We feel it in our bones. We see it in our weakness. We see it in the way we get illnesses. We watch ourselves get to the point where we can't get out of bed. We all know what I'm talking about, right? If it hasn't happened to us yet, it's happened to people we know. That is the nature of death. Death takes hold slowly and over time, and eventually it brings us to our end. That's the norm. That's how God designed death to work. He didn't have to do it that way. We accept it as norm because that's the only thing we've ever seen. But think about it for a minute. He could have said, because of what you've done, Adam, you will die instantly on your 150th birthday. You would have lived a perfectly normal, healthy life, and then everyone on their 150th birthday falls over. He could have done that. could have done it that way, but he didn't. So taking these three facts together, look at what you arrive at just out of what we know in Scripture so far. We conclude, number one, that physical death is a process that takes time to take hold. It's a process of weakening and of deterioration. Secondly, we notice whatever is behind this process of deterioration, whatever the biology of it is, it must be getting stronger as you move through generations and generations because especially after the flood, the age of people starts to just drop off and drop off. So death is something bigger than all of us. It is growing in its strength over humanity over time. So that not only are we wearing out personally, but humanity is wearing out as a whole. And the next models are not as good as the previous models. And they're getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and they're getting diseased sooner and sooner and sooner or later. Things like cancer, asthma, autism, heart disease, blood, high blood pressure. Things would start to show up in greater and greater numbers sooner and sooner and we would find ways to deal with them drugs and therapies and those things might have an effect for a time slow the progress maybe even reverse it but then after a while the drugs don't work anymore in the because god's power in that effect is greater than any of our power to stop it and people will get shorter and shorter and shorter lives the point is men initially had a very long lifespan because they were beginning with bodies that had still most of that strength from how he created them and the kind of deterioration that was appointed through the death process was only beginning to take hold 
And after generations and generations, it gets stronger and stronger because of the nature of the death God proclaimed. He says this will be a wearing away, deteriorating kind of process, not an all-at-once kind of process. Well, what kind of physical, biological process might accommodate or might explain this? Where would I go in science, in other words, to try to find evidence of this? Well, the best scientific explanation for how this is actually happening is found in our DNA. The errors and the defects in our genetic code are passed on from one generation to the next. And as they are passed on from more and more people, they build. Defects are building up and they're not going away. And as those defects continue to build up and get passed along, genetic defects bring disease and frailty. And they shorten the length of life. Again, we'll look a lot more at that in chapter 9. Now the next observation we can make is that this is not a complete list of Adam's direct descendants. This isn't everybody. One thing to note, though, is all the names are Hebrew. There's only one language in which all of these names have any meaning, where the words themselves mean something. The only language in which they all have meaning, Hebrew, which is further confirmation that the first language that Adam spoke and that was spoken until at least the Tower of Babel was Hebrew. Everyone was speaking the same language. Now, we're told in verse 4 that Adam had other sons and daughters over his 930 years of life. He could easily, in that time, have had hundreds of children, depending on Eve's patience and tolerance. And by the time Adam died, he was alive while his great, 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 great grandchildren were alive. And that's a good opportunity for me to point out, if you didn't get this already, but this is a great chart that you can use to compare who was alive when who was still alive. One thing that stands out to me is Noah, Noah's father, was alive for over 50 years while Adam was still alive. So the man that got on the boat only had to go to his dad to get secondhand knowledge about the beginning of all things. Dad could have spent some time sitting with Adam and got a first-hand account of all that transpired since the beginning of time. And then just had to tell his son about it, and all of this information survives into the next generation after the flood. It didn't require some you know, magical process of things being written down and stored and carried around. Two guys could have sat and had a coffee, and we would have had everything we needed if the memories were there and God provided for them to hold those memories. Adam died only 125 years before Noah was born. And Noah was born only 14 years after Seth died, the second generation. But I want you to notice something else that Moses takes time to emphasize in this account. After each man in the line is listed, what is the one thing he says about everybody? He died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And this guy lived 900 and something years. Oh, but he died anyway. I don't care how long you lived, you still died. Today, men live 75, maybe 80 years on average. Certainly some live a little longer than that. And even now, with only an 80-year lifespan... People still walk around giving little thought to the fact that they're going to die. I mean, I guess we all prefer not to think about it, and that makes some sense, but there's a lot of people who live like it's never going to happen. The fact is, death comes to all, and then comes judgment. And like an ostrich, there's a lot of people, and we probably know many ourselves, who live their life with their heads in sand, so to speak, hoping that they can ignore the unpleasant fact that one day they will die and they will have to face judgment. 
Now, if that's true today, with people who only have about 80 years of that to do before the, the truth hits them, how do you think you felt when you lived 900 years? Two, three, four hundred years go by, you're not even thinking about death, are you? You feel immortal. Especially when you consider the first guy was still alive. As long as the first guy's still alive, you might actually fool yourself into thinking death will never come. I mean, yes, Abel died. Lamech killed a guy, we're told. Maybe a few others had died one way or another. But you have to believe death was a rarity. Few had seen it. Adam hadn't even experienced it. So with that kind of longevity, you could easily imagine these people walk around, many of them, completely unaware and unworried about what's coming when they die because death seems so remote, so far away from anything they've ever experienced. Moses writes this story because I think he wants everyone who reads it to remember the fact that death is common to all men. It does catch up to everyone eventually. I don't care how long you live. And therefore, we ought to be giving some thought to what comes next. Now, there is a curious exception. At the very end of what I read, there is a curious exception to this thought that everyone dies. And of course, everyone notices this, or should notice it. It's the man who is the seventh in the line from Adam coming through Seth's line. Now, let's look at this man, though, from several points of view. First, notice the length of time he lives. Enoch lives 365 years, and then in verse 24, we hear God took him. Starting just now with the age, the age of the man, it's interesting all by itself because he lives essentially a year for every day in a year. 365 days in a year, he lives 365 years. It suggests something, doesn't it? it to me, it suggests the adding up of a whole adding up of something to reaching a number that is commensurate with a completed whole. 365 days, and he reached that completed number, and, and now he's complete. Now, what I mean by that is that he could have picked seven, he could have picked 70 times seven, he could have picked any number at all, but here's a number that doesn't have any meaning in and of itself. It's not a spiritual number. But to anyone who understands how we count time, it immediately begins to suggest a time that added up, and then when the time was finished, God was ready. Secondly, notice Enoch's place in the line of Seth. I mentioned already, he's seventh. Cain's line, remember, ended in a seventh as well. The record of Cain's line stops when we get to Lamech. We hear nothing more about Cain's line. We know it goes on, but Moses stops talking about it because it doesn't matter anymore. In Cain's line, the seventh ends with a perfect, completed sin nature. Here we have a genealogy that doesn't end in the seventh any more than Cain's line ended in the seventh. But it becomes a convenient stopping point for comparison purposes. Gee, if seven in the line of Cain is ultimate sin, I wonder what seven in the line of Seth means, the appointed one. Well, it comes to a man named Enoch who we're told walks with God and then is no more. So while Cain's line is a line of unbelievers that live opposed to God, Seth's line is the seed line, the line that will carry on toward the Messiah. And in its seventh position, you have a man who completes a year's worth of days and he walks with God. The Hebrew for walk here is the same that's used when Moses describes God walking with Adam in the garden. It implies fellowship, a close connection. That's the kind of man Enoch is. And then lastly, the way he ends his life. The phrase here for, in the English version of the Bible, that mine says, for he was not, for God took him. In Hebrew, that's two words. One of them is Elohim, God. And the only other word is lakak, means literally uh, received or caught or took away. 
That's all that's there in the Hebrew. God took away or caught up Enoch. The meaning is clear though, isn't it? Enoch does not suffer physical death. He leaves the earth without first passing through a death process. The writer of Hebrews affirms this interpretation when he speaks about this same man. In Hebrews 11, verse 5, we hear this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, this taking away is obviously strange and it's unique, and therefore it brings us to an important question. Why does God choose to end Enoch's life this way? in comparison to the way all these other men were simply seeing death. Well, to get the proper answer, let's add up all these clues that I've thrown out onto the table. The clues of his age and his position as the seventh in the line and so on. And then we have to add a couple of other details. We have to consider what we know will come next after Enoch's departure, and that is namely the flood. We know that the flood of Noah is right around the corner. And we also need to take note of how the New Testament uses the flood story itself as a picture of something. We'll study this more in chapter 6, 7, and 8, and 9. But the flood story is, according to the New Testament, a picture of God's judging of the world. It's a picture of that, not the reality of it, because it pictures a greater judgment that ends the world. That is the final judgment God is bringing upon the world. So this flood is really a, a precursor, a small example of what God will do in the later day by fire, Peter says, as opposed to by water. So with that fact, do you begin to see a parallel? Does something begin to connect in your mind, maybe? Well, as the seventh in the line, Enoch must stand as an opposite to Lamech. That's obvious, right? God has orchestrated Enoch's life as a testimony, as a witness to the opposite effect of what Lamech witnessed to. Lamech witnessed to sin, depravity, opposition to God. Well, therefore, in the seventh line of Seth, Enoch will be God's example of the opposite of that. A man who walks with God, who is godly in all respects and knows the Lord. And then Enoch is taken from the earth as he reaches his 365th year, a completed period of time symbolized by that age. And he is taken by God from the earth. And then after he's gone, there'll be a period of time still on the earth before the flood arrives. The flood doesn't come the same day he's gone. There's a little bit of a gap. And then the flood will come, judgment waters will come, leaving only a very few to be rescued out of the flood. The parallels between this moment and something that is yet to happen are screaming out at you from the text. Enoch is a symbol of the church, of the believing church that walks with God in faith, in contrast to the unbelieving world, which denies God and blasphemes and all the rest, does the kinds of things that Lamech does. And after an appointed period of time, after a completed number is reached, then Enoch is removed from the earth. Likewise, after God reaches the appointed number of those who will be saved in the church, the church will be removed from the earth. We call that the rapture in the New Testament. Enoch, therefore, becomes a picture of God's mercy in removing the believing church from the earth right before he brings judgment to those who remain behind. Second Peter 3 says that the future judgment will be of fire. In Enoch's day, it was a coming judgment of water that reflects the lesser to greater picture here. This is a lesser compared to the later judgment, and therefore it's a picture of that greater judgment. 
But what about those who are left behind after Enoch's departure? Well, there are believers still on the earth after Enoch's departure. Look at your chart and you'll notice that Enoch's death comes well before the flood. And that there are still men in the seed line, believers in other words, who are on the earth after the days of Enoch. And then you have the fact that there will be some rescued from the flood, Noah and his family specifically. This is also consistent with what Scripture tells us will happen in the last days. Scripture tells us that after the church is removed, there will yet still be believers on the earth. Immediately after the rapture, God begins a new wave of evangelism, and new believers are made in those last days from a starting seed of evangelists that God calls. And they martyr throughout the time of this of this period of tribulation. They are put to death as martyrs awaiting Christ's return. Similarly, if I look at this chart, I notice that before the flood comes, not a single patriarch is alive for the flood except Noah. Every believer in the line of Seth dies or is, in the case of Enoch, raptured before the flood comes. Judgment does not fall on any believer. The only one left is Noah and he gets in the boat. Finally, if I go to Jude, verses 14 and 15, here's what Jude said. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly manner, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude says that Enoch actually had the duty in the days before he died, before he was taken, to proclaim to the world there was a coming judgment, that they were at risk, and that before he departed, he preached this to the seventh generation from Adam. Well, of course he preached it to the seventh generation from Adam. That was his generation. Likewise, the church today, we have an obligation, based on what we know out of Scripture, to be that preacher of righteousness to the world today, warning them that there is a coming judgment. And that once the church is gone, judgment will come to the earth. And ultimately, the ungodly will not be spared. Finally, let's look at the last three verses for the day real briefly, and we'll finish. We want to note here that Enoch's line doesn't end. Look at verse 25. He has a son, Methuselah, before he is translated. And it says in verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. This is a different Lamech, obviously. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. The oldest man ever recorded. Methuselah. His name means, when he dies, it shall be sent. That's what Methuselah means in Hebrew. According to the genealogies in Genesis, the year that Methuselah died is the very same year that the flood came upon the earth. Methuselah was the, the last believer, if you will, to die prior to the coming of the flood that took Noah and his family in the boat. Now his father, Methuselah's father, was Enoch. When Enoch names his son this prophetic name as a warning to the world, warning them that judgment will come. He essentially makes his son a poster for the world, and everywhere he goes, his name is, when I die, it's coming. When I die, it will be sent. When I'm dead, you're in trouble. And he lives 969 years, which probably gave some reason to think it's never going to come. 
And today, Peter says, in the last days, people will come mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the beginning of time, things have been the same. Ever since the fathers. That there is in the same way that there is this, in, in this day a long period of waiting, which may lead some to think it's never going to happen, there is that same kind of potential today. But none of the men in the line of the Messiah die in the flood. None of them are the victims of God's judgment. All of them are rescued in one way or another. They're either called home, translated, or put on a boat. God will spare the righteous as he brings judgment to the unrighteous. And in this short chapter of genealogies, we see God presenting a picture of exactly why and how he will do that, even as he leads us into a story of judgment in the case of Noah. We'll come in in two weeks and pick up the very end of chapter 5 and talking about Noah, and we'll launch into an extended time in the story of the flood. This is one of my favorite areas of Genesis. There are tremendous opportunities for pictures and shadows in the story of Noah of Christ of the coming judgment on the world. There is a lot, a lot of detail in the book uh, concerning those events, those future events, even as we learn about the ones of Noah's day. Go with me in prayer as we finish for the day. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, so much for the confidence and the comfort to know that you will never confuse the righteous and the unrighteous as you prepare to bring judgment. We would prefer, Father, that there not be even a need for judgment, that all would come to know you and that there would be only those who are righteous awaiting you. But we know, Father, from your word that that will not be the case. And so we take comfort in both the fact that by grace you have called us out from that threat of judgment and have called us to be your witness. And, Father, we take comfort in knowing that we still yet have time to be your messenger of an opportunity for grace. Let us take full advantage of that opportunity in whatever time remains so that we may be effective, Father, according to your will and calling others to know you. And I also ask, Father, that this little church and all that we have and all the strength we have, Father, would continue to be a beacon of, of truth through your word and a source of mercy and grace to many others. Let us have that privilege, Father, for we know that it pleases you. We know that it gives opportunity for us, Father, to be rewarded for our faith and our, our faithful service and our obedience. And because, Father, it is your heart, to see your people serve in that way. And I ask, Father, we'd have a good week. Send us out of here celebrating mothers today and celebrating you every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.